This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 7th of October 2023. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. And coming up on today's programme, we'll have a leaf through the global papers with Somnat Batabayo. Then... You're on the ground here, you know exactly what what can work, what can't work. So this was kind of the little push I needed to, to make it happen. Monocle's Naomi Sue Elegant speaks to the founder of the Dili International Film Festival about bringing films from across the globe to her home in Timor-Leste. First, though, here's the news. Palestinian gunmen infiltrated areas of southern Israel and rocket barrages were launched from the Gaza Strip today in a surprise attack claimed by the Islamist movement Hamas. Mohammed Diaf, a senior Hamas military commander, announced the start of the operation in a broadcast on Hamas media, calling on Palestinians everywhere to fight. This is the day of the greatest battle to end the last occupation on earth, he said, adding that 5,000 rockets had been launched. The Biden administration is expected to announce a new weapons package for Ukraine next week as the Pentagon continues to use up funds discovered due to a multi-billion dollar accounting error. US officials have said those funds have allowed the Biden administration to send Kyiv arms, supplies and munitions despite the exclusion of new Ukrainian aid from a stopgap spending bill passed by the House of Representatives last weekend to prevent a government shutdown. And imprisoned Iranian women's rights advocate Nargis Mohammadi won the Nobel Peace Prize on Friday in a rebuke to Tehran's theocratic leaders and a boost for anti-government protesters. The award-making committee said the prize honoured those behind recent unprecedented demonstrations in Iran and called for the release of Mohammadi, who's 51 and has campaigned for three decades for women's rights and abolition of the death penalty. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. It is the 7th of October. I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm joined in the studio now by Somnath Batabayal, who is a lecturer in media and development and international journalism at SOAS. Good morning to you, Somnath. Morning, morning. How are you doing? It's lovely to have you in here on a Saturday, much less pressured than our normal kind of weekday quick-fire globalist. Yeah, always a pleasure to see you. Um, Sona, I am very um, interested in what your job entails. Wow. <laughs> no one else seems to be. Thank you. Particularly not your students. <laughs> <laughs> they do spend a lot of money to come, but <laughs> then lose interest very quickly. Um, but it seems very, very broad, actually, yeah. that, that title. What, Media what? and Development. Yeah. Uh, well, it's an interesting one. You know, uh, we look at the politics of development, which probably was one of the biggest tropes la- uh, in the last century, and it's devastating consequences of developing the world continues into this one. In uh, one hand, we trace its intellectual roots back to modernization, post-16th century, what happened, enlightened, enlightenment. This entire intellectual trajectory and how the media uh, in the 20th century spread the word. You know, you do not know you're underdeveloped till you see mm. development, you know, and what happened in the 20th century and how it's changing 
today in today's uh, situation, leading us to what we I say is climate change, um, AI, and all of those things. So it's a vast four to five hundred years of intellectual uh, European intellectualism and modern media. Mm. I mean, extraordinary because the, I suppose you'll, you'll, I mean, you'll know this much better than I, but off the top of my head, I suppose the, the first big point is the, the, the Gutenberg Bible. Yes, indeed, the, indeed, the, indeed. The printing press it, it, arrives. Of course, of course. And then at the other end right now, okay, you have AI. AI yes, absolutely. Um, so this, this entire trajectory, but I mean, our political moment is of course post-Second World War and uh, President Truman and his idea of a new kind of imperialism which starts you know, after the physical colonizing of the colonies, what happens to the global south after? Mm. And, and um, the havoc it has wrecked on, uh, on the world. And continues to. And continues to. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about havoc because there's a really awful story that we're reporting in our yes. headlines, and this is what's uh, this escalation between uh, Israel and Palestine. Uh, Al Jazeera had a big piece on this. It's not made it to many of the papers because, yeah. of course, it just happened this morning. Yeah. Uh, what do we know? Well, I mean, it seems that the Israeli intelligence has been caught off guard um, about three thirty a.m. Uh, UK time. About five thousand rockets were fired into uh, areas around Gaza uh, in Israel. And even uh, the BBC uh, reporter at the moment reporting from the spot says that he can see uh, rockets flying everywhere. Uh, Israel Defense Ministry has also said that um, Palestinian warrior, uh, fighters have um, infiltrated Israel. Uh, they have declared uh, it as a state of war. So there's a huge escalation uh, at the moment. And, uh, you know, it's an ongoing situation. Uh, Mohammed Dave, who's the Palestinian from the Palestinian militant group, has said enough is enough. A senior commander from Hamas has said this operation has started, claiming thousands of rockets have been launched. So there's a lot of... Uh, there's a um, press briefing which is also going on at the sides. And it seems um, at the moment that... What Israel almost uh, the Israeli intelligence is almost admitting that they were not expecting this, which is given its uh, you know its pervasive nature in Gaza. This this seems to have come as a surprise. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's quite worrying the statement coming from uh, from um, the, uh, Mohammed Diaf, the, mm. the military Hamas military mm. commander. He yeah. said, "This is the day of the greatest battle to end the last occupation on earth." Yes, I mean. Uh, it is warning, but you know, I mean, there's a kind of, uh, I, I guess, uh, hyperbole to it uh, also. Uh, uh, but there is no doubt that this is a major escalation which was not foreseen at all. Mm. Uh, uh, no one seemed to have made any preparations or plans for this, and it's quite sad. And, and um, it's difficult to know where this goes from here since. 2020, there has, I mean, there has been a kind of quiet. You know, the last major escalation was the 10-day war which took place. Since then, there has been a relative quiet and uh, this sudden escalation comes out of nowhere. Mm. And I mean, it's particularly pertinent right now because, of course, there are these normalisation talks between yeah. Israel yeah. and Saudi Arabia. Mm. The US is involved in this. I yeah. mean, this has got huge, huge consequences. Yeah, and uh, it remains to be seen, you know, uh, how other nations in the Middle East respond to this, what their, uh, what their um, uh, statements will be. But 
one thing we know for sure, and this is, this is always which bothers me, that the ordinary people in Gaza who continue to suffer will face the brunt of this as Israel responds. And Israel's response is always mm. so huge, so brutal. that, um, and, and it says that you know, we have to defend ourselves as a nation. Um, so, yeah, people in Gaza will, who have been, like, you know, for the, so many years now, have been blocked off essential supplies, healthcare, education, you name it, they will fa- face the brunt of this mm. operation again. And of course, Netanyahu's kind of captured by the extreme right of his party. Yes, and uh, the and politics the, of that is so difficult. And, absolutely. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, at the moment, he's, you know, attending his security meetings. He's, uh, nothing really much has come from Netanyahu's office at the moment, except that, you know, he's in briefings at the moment. Um, but again, because of this political situation in Israel and the configuration of the ruling party, you would expect a very, very harsh um, reply back to this Mm. offensive. Let's continue to look at this capture of politics by the extreme right, because it looks like uh, uh, Bavaria, Germany's largest state, uh, is going to choose a new parliament on Sunday. It looks like it might be going that way too. Yes, uh, that's, you know, this is the thing about Bavaria. You know, if I remembered uh, it from uh, about 15 years ago when I used to... um, live in um, Heidelberg as a postdoctoral fellow. Uh, Germany's biggest state was a quiet region where conservative German politicians before their elections would sit out in beer tents and wearing traditional clothes campaigning. This has completely changed with this election where parties from the right are accusing uh, opponents of very hostile tactics. Green Party uh, candidates are saying how difficult it has been to campaign. Uh, Candidates who are taken ill during election campaigns saying toxins have been injected into them. Other other candidates who are being put in safe houses. And as far as we can understand, this politics is around the fact that immigration has taken a huge, an overarching umbrella in, in German politics at the moment. So it's very, it's very concerning um, that um, this will probably take a very toxic right-wing turn. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned migration because, of course, there was this big, um, there was this big meeting, uh, I think it was in Spain, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, um, and uh, about in, in Granada, about, um, about migration, uh, Poland and Hungary have blocked the symbolic EU statement about migration. Yeah. Germany is, is, of course, up in arms about yeah. this. Though. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, I think one of the things to un- probably understand one what most EU member states are saying is that migration has always happened through history. It will continue to happen. Um, how we manage migration as a block, political block, is what's important. You cannot say migration will hap- not happen, it will stop completely. That won't work. What the major nations are also saying is that we do not want to be held hostage to migration. You know, there are, um, the gangs who move people around. Um, also, we do not want to be held hostage to... It's a difficult term. What is called illegal migrants moving in. Um, 
And this also becomes a major issue in elections all around, especially what will happen in the UK at the moment. You know, but I think one of the things we should perhaps focus on when we are talking about this, and just to be slightly micro about this, uh, we go back to the Bavarian uh, election, if you don't mind me uh, taking this back so that we can relate up to what Europe has said. You know, um, I just want to name a couple of politicians there. Tino Krupala, who is the co-leader of the Alternative for Deutschland, again, slightly right of center. He was taken into intensive care, feeling unwell during an election rally. Now, his party <clears throat> is making an extraordinary claim that it was a physical attack and he was injected with toxins. Now, this in Germany from even 10 years back is unthinkable, right? Uh, his co-leader, Alice Weidel, was taken by Swiss police from her home in Switzerland to a safe house. See, it just shows how toxic elections are becoming. And I say this given that this was one of the quiet regions in Germany. I don't think this will be contained only in Germany. This will spread to Hungary. This will spread. Well, we we will see. Ex escalations in our own elections uh, next year. But I mean, the rhetoric coming out of some of these politicians, even here in Britain, Suella Braverman, the, the Home Secretary here, who is just spewing absolute, as far as I can see, hate speech. I mean, really attacking people who are not British born and bred. Yeah. And I find that extraordinary. So, I mean, um, I think certain groups and a right wing, I mean, you're right in saying that even mainstream conservative parties are buying into more right wing rhetoric. I mean, Nigel Farage is being welcomed back to mainfold politics again. Um, so, yes, there, there's a definite lurch. In one sense, if you see, and I mean, most people will not notice, but the UK has remained slightly um, away from what is happening in Europe European politics, but it has not been completely taken over by far-right extremists. You know, and we have managed to maintain that. But in countries, other countries in the Europe, there's a very, very um, concerning trend. Mm. And I mean, what, what, what's also happening here is that we are told that it's been done from a place of compassion because yeah. what they're really trying to do is stop the gangs, stop the traffickers, stop the small boats, stop people dying unnecessarily. But what they're not doing is providing a legal route yeah. to asylum. Yeah. I mean, again, if we think about my, and I do a lot of this in, uh, in development politics, um, migration is a symptom of something, you know, of no, I mean, very few would want to brave those high seas or illegal trafficking and the guys who do that if life was bearable at home. People will do anything to survive. So this is a symptom. Uh, and <clears throat> it's a symptom of 100 years of our politics, what we have done to other countries mm. over centuries, right? And, and we are reap as you sow, so shall you reap, you know. And what we are doing today will come back to haunt us um, 100 years later. So, the, the, so putting it in a larger context as you are, migration is never seen as a, as a cause of a, hundreds of other things which the, you know, the mighty West has done around the world. And people come because of that, mm. um, looking for a safer haven to, to treat them with the 
or to greet them with the words which spews out of our government is shameful. Absolutely, absolutely. Speaking of the of the gangs, of the criminals that are involved in this, I have just discovered that you've actually got some link to the criminal fraternity. <laughs> Uh, that, that, this is from <laughs> this is from uh, years ago. Um, so I was a um, what we call crime a crime reporter in India, uh, especially in Delhi and a bit in Bombay. So um, I wrote a novel of my experiences for about eight nine years called The Price You Pay. In two thousand eleven, it came out as a book with Harper Collins. The good news uh, is that uh, about a year back, we started a. Um, eight-part series and production in it by a very, very um, good, not only famous, but very good um, director in Give Bombay. Give us the name. Give us the name. Sudhir Mishra is one oh. of the best ones known. His recent film called Afwa, which has just come out, called Rumours, had a few bits of the Jaipur Lit Fest in it. Uh, I talked about, you know, uh, he's, a, he's a very provocative, um, intellectually coherent, radical filmmaker who also does uh, films which sell. So, um, you know, it's under his uh, um, uh, guidance at the moment. Uh, we are editing the first four episodes. It's very exciting um, to go back to Delhi, uh, see those sets, and, and also kind of think that slightly boastfully that your words created this. <laughs> you know, Amazing. Yeah, 250 people on set. I really loved it. Yeah. yeah. And so it's about, it's about crime. It is about crime. It is about... It's a nexus of the state, how journalists, policemen feed off each other and the, how the underworld uses this, you know. So uh, look, and my, my one specif- specifically looked at a um, underworld, what we call Don, who lives abroad. Um, and, you know, there are the Bombay, the big Bombay gangsters of the 70s, 80s, 90s, all moved out into neighboring countries, mm-hmm. which I don't want to, you know, because always uh, <laughs> it starts a con- conversation. Uh, and operate from there. So this was about one of those gangsters who decided to come back. Fantastic. And will this be on the festival circuit or on streaming? Or It'll be on the streaming circuit, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about festival film festivals, though, because um, German filmmaker Lena Lenson moved to Dili in Timor-Leste in uh, 2010. And in 2019, she founded the Dili International Film Festival with the aim of bringing global films to a Timorese audience. Now, Monocle's Naomi Shu Elegance spoke to her to hear more about the origins of the festival and this year's event. So there was always this idea of wouldn't it be great in Asia's youngest country to host an international film festival, especially with a, a president and our patron Jose Ramos Horta, who is also the biggest film buff. So he was actually just in, in, in the US, he met Oscar Isaac, who played him in a, in a movie. Balibo 5. So I know he loves movies. He understands a lot also the impact of movies, of communication through stories, through visuals. So, yeah, so that was always this idea to do something bigger. I then met through my work of dubbing and subtitling films into Tatum language, the local language. I met uh, Michael Smith. He's Australian. He runs cinemas in Australia. And amongst those, the Sun Theatre in Melbourne, which is a beautiful cinema. And then we sat together and he said, why don't we actually do that? Because I have the connections in Australia through my work to bring movies in. You're on the ground here. You know exactly what what can work, what can't work. So this was kind of the little push I needed to, to make it happen. So this was 2019. 
we then asked the, the president, what do you actually think about that, sir? And then he said, oh, of course, a great idea. And yeah, so then we started in 2019. So this year it's the fifth edition. And yeah, it grew bigger and bigger. We have international guests. Um, we have a producer here from LA, which is amazing. We're going to screen her documentary with this light about a nun in Honduras. Beautiful, beautiful film. We're screening that at the Annunciatura, which is the Embassy of the Holy See, which is amazing to be able to do an event there. We're going to have two Japanese producers here. We're going to screen their film um, December. We're having a filmmaker from Portugal, but he actually at the moment is based in Australia. Plus, we're having from Indonesia an amazing actress, Christina Kim, who is celebrating this year 50 years of being in the movie business. She just played in One of Us, this series that was quite successful. She played the scientist, the Indonesian scientist. She was also in Eat, Pray, Love. She played the lady in Bali. I mean, she has such a long career to, to look back to. We're going to screen three of her films as a retrospective. I'm bringing a filmmaker from Germany to do some workshops. So it's, it's a lot going on. It's going to be three weeks and screenings, workshops, events, a party. <laughs> I just posted the flyer of the party, which is on Saturday, which I'm very much looking forward to. Have you noticed any interest among Timorese to become filmmakers? Yeah, so since the beginning, since 2019, we've been hosting a national competition for short films. The thing is, we don't have any film schools here, which is also one of the reasons why, why we're doing this. This year, I'm amazed with the quality of the films. So we have 16 films from young filmmakers, groups. We even had the development that some of them that have been starting from 2019, they're now mentoring others. So this has been so cool. So there's like this one guy who's an amazing scriptwriter and he has all these like very rough and, and very, very direct, but in a good way and in a relevant way, all these ideas. And he started to mentor like three groups. And so they all came in and he helped them out with the technical part and with the editing. So. This is something that really through the film festival, yeah, I feel that this young filmmaker scene has been growing and they also got more confident to, to go into it. It's a scary thing to do a movie, right? I mean, I'm a, I make movies myself. So like even just where do you start, you know, with the research, the script writing, it's such an emotional process and it's so fragile also. So it's really nice to, to see that like we had this year, we had so many yeah entries and they are of such good quality. So there's one cinema in, in Delhi. Where are the other events going to be taking place? There is, you also do a lot of beach screenings, right? Exactly. So we have the one cinema, Platinum Cineplex. We have a cultural organization, which is called Fundasa Oriente. They have a great courtyard. They do a lot with artists. We screen there on the wall, they have a big wall, so they also have an auditorium, so this is great also for workshops. Beach screening, so Beachside Hotel, so our partner for the film festival, he, he actually owns Beachside Hotel, so he set up this amazing screen in the water, so you sit, you have the sunset, and then you watch a movie. We have other venues like like the Brazilian Embassy, where we do something for the first time. We're going to be at human rights uh, organizations. One is called Yaya Sanhak. 
So they have like a, a courtyard where we just put a screen and just screen the films there, give out coconuts, give out popcorn, which is really a grassroots thing. So yeah, it's um, we are kind of taking over those. So Delhi is a small city. There's not a lot of venues. So over three weeks, yeah, people will, will see and hear us quite a lot. Chronicles Naomi Sue Elegant speaking to the founder of Dilly Film Festival, Lena Lenson. And it's great that film is is uh, is once more on the rise and certainly in, in, in locations like that. Of course, it's had a huge blow in Hollywood with the writer's strike. That's been a big problem. And theatres generally since COVID have been seeing revenues, cinemas have been seeing revenues go down. Great story coming out now, though, about cultural juggernaut Taylor Swift. Can you name a Taylor Swift song? Look, you and I are the only one. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm absolutely ignorant about uh, popular culture and young people. My, my, my nine-year-old would. Well, anyway, Taylor Swift has packed stadiums with her concert tour. Uh, and uh, that's, that is actually going to become uh, a, 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 a thing that you can see in cinemas. And so people are really wondering if she will do the same for, for movie houses as she has done for, for concerts. I mean, you know, she is sustaining whole economies. Yes, absolutely. And... Uh, I think, again, post the Hollywood writers' strike, um, good news is very important for the film industry. But there's another side to it. Uh, After Barbie and Hoppenheimer, um, theatre owners, distributors have done very well. And I also am just immediately thinking of, um, besides Hollywood, the other big cultural um, uh, specimen is Bollywood. Again, new films. Uh, Not only has Barbie done enormously well there but um, new films like from Shah Rukh Khan uh, Sunny Dale that have been breaking box office uh, records hugely popular I mean one of Bollywood's biggest gross, uh, grosses has come out called Jawan right now um, so in one sense the industry is despite the strikes is on a high uh, there is suddenly money to fund new innovative writing, uh, despite AI and all of that. Um, and Taylor Swift's intervention comes at a right time. Because this is also an industry which has been battered not only by the strikes, but by streaming agencies. Uh, uh, Theatres uh, have really had to bear the brunt. Mm. So this is, I guess this is one way of um, marketing and theatre executives thinking of new ways to pull audience back in mm. into the theatres. I wonder though if it works. I mean, if if you're going to see your favourite artist, whether it's Beyonce or Taylor Swift or for you and I, possibly the late, great, lamented Roger Whittaker. <laughs> yes. Oh. oh, yeah, that was a sad blow. Um, but if you're going to see them in a stadium, you're the kind of person that wants to be there. And is it the same watching it on a big screen? I suppose it is, because in a stadium, you mostly watch the screen anyway. They're so tiny yes, and far away. Yes, I mean, of course, the Rolling Stones concerts, uh, you, know, you get tickets and you stand um, 100,000 people back and all you are looking at is the screens. But of course, there is a very different energy, uh, no doubt about a live event, people jostling with each other, which I don't like very much at all times. <laughs> yes. I won't get to anything unless I'm behind the velvet rope. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I ba- barely ever managed that. But, but again, you know, um, a cultural icon trying out something new is a positive for theatres mm. um, and, and an industry, again, which has had to 
were quite a few seismic shock waves uh, in the last what 10 to 15 years they mm. found it difficult mm. so anything which brings in revenue and people back into theaters is a positive yeah well, be try- Taylor Swift <laughs> <laughs> trying something new is obviously okay. always a good thing the not city- always though well, you know I mean quite uh, often yeah, well, really, okay, we must okay. be innovative we'll, we'll, we must we'll run be with it. <laughs> ever curious we must push the boundaries which is what Marseille is doing uh, yes they're doing a, a whole thing with rooftops this is just a lovely story tell me tell me the detail of this I mean, how, so there's a weekend festival which is being organized and Paris and other European nations are joining back on it that our rooftops become more civic open spaces. I think it's a lovely idea just because urban spaces and especially in a city like Marseille, which is very congested, uh, how to open up and create new spaces when you cannot really build anymore unless it's skyscrapers, right? Um, and I'm immediately reminded of uh, back to my childhood days is courtyards in India is to be our open spaces, right? Where we all would gather the entire neighborhood on particular courtyards. Now, courtyards have vanished. Uh, so what is the next one? It's uh, rooftops. And not only rooftop. And one of our, my problems is whenever we think new spaces, it's always colonized by companies. Mm. And here you're trying to move away from rooftop bars, but think about gyms, things about reading spaces. And a festival around this idea, again, I think is extremely... The French always do it, uh, innovative things first. Yeah, absolutely. And because Paris has had a, a rooftop day, I think yes. they, rooftop days yeah. in September, yeah. uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a European creative rooftop network. ECRN, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And again, about nine countries are, uh, nine member countries are part of it. Yeah. So just trying to think this innovatively through, I think it's, again, thinking through environmental aspects of it, not building more, but using spaces which are not generally, you know, not... Um, traditionally used in the same ways, just finding other ways of doing it. Mm. Rooftop parties we always do, Fantastic. right? You know, we've thought, yeah. So just getting people together. Yeah. I love the idea of a rooftop festival and you and I were just talking off air about various literary festivals. Yes, indeed. Um, and in fact, today, after this, I am off to Cheltenham because the Cheltenham Literature Festival is on for 10 days. I'm doing 10 events with 18 different authors. Good luck, good <laughs> luck. I mean, you must have had to read a lot. I really yeah. do. Um, but tonight is um, Carl Ove Nausgaard. Of oh, course, he wrote oh. all that auto fiction. And, my struggle. And are you? Are you on, I did struggle. Uh, um, <laughs> I got through. I think I, I felt that oh, a, a, maybe a stricter editor might have <laughs> helped me through. Well, but that's the thing is yeah. that apparently, as he works with his editor, his editor gives him no cuts whatsoever. Oh, and you say, well, I can see that, frankly, but. This is a discussion I will have with him this evening. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, and there'll be many, many authors between then and next Sunday when I end up with the super vet, Noel Fitzpatrick. Ah. And we were talking about Taylor Swift. Yes. Well, can I just kind of swivel that to um, Britney Spears? Please because do. her uh, song, Oh, God. All right. Okay. Song, You're really catching me out today. Her song Toxic yes. is about the super vet. Ah. Um, okay, okay. Uh, well, but this is see, because... You know popular culture, you know, you just pretend. <laughs> it's only because it was written by Kathy Dennis. Ah, Kathy Dennis yes, wrote all sorts of things yes. like uh, I Kissed a Girl and, and, and that. Um, and apparently she had a big affair with Noel Fitzpatrick. So that will be my question for him. Gossip columnist too. Absolutely need to know about being an inspiration for a global pop star. Um, 
Somna, thank you. Thanks That's very fun. much. That was fun. Wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It was lots of fun. Thanks also to our producer, Mariella Bevan, and our studio engineer, Steph Chungu, with editing assistance from Sami Swissy. And of course, to Somnath Batabayal. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I will be making a flying visit back to London to do that from the festival. I'm Georgina Godwin. Many thanks for listening. <laughs>